Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. July 12th, 2020, episode 177, Allowed. My name's Kevin England, and this is the Beekeeper's Corner. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 177th edition of the show. This is a podcast about beekeeping, beekeeping management, and other things. You know, I never tire of that Huey Lewis little thing in the beginning. Just love that song. Yeah. Made me think about COVID. I just bought a Huey Lewis mask. If you got to wear a mask, it should either be bees or racing or whatever for me. Anyway, weird intro to the show. You know, this year, <laughs> I have this opinion, it's been a strange mix of frustration and euphoria for me about beekeeping. It's been one of the most diverse seasons I've had go on in quite some time since we started in 2008. If I think back to the beginning of the year, slow start, cold, frustrating, couldn't get in and inspect the hives. Then when we could get in, I found I had a demon of a hive and had to go through that episode. And ever since I got that hive cleared up, I've been playing a little catch up to get everything in order. I finally got everything in order. I feel like the hives are in good condition and started in on the queen rearing that Bob Kloss and I have been working on. I just have had a total blast in doing that. Along the way, I keep thinking the little voice in the back of my head that reminds me you should be taking care of things, and I try to listen to it as I talk about in the show, was telling me it's time to do my checks and get checking things. I'll talk a little bit about that in the local hive report, but treatments, queen rearing, and a couple other things have been what's been occupying the time recently, along with home projects. So harvesting honey. We did it, and one of the things that I've always wanted to do was shoot a good video on the ins and outs of harvesting honey. So today I'll talk about that. The video is in production, uh, trying to get that ready, and a little setback on that, which I'll discuss, but um, we'll talk about that right in topic number one. This year I had an objective to use NICO queen rearing and I alluded in a previous episode that there were some learnings from that and I'm going to share a little insights of this season's queen rearing with the NICO and grafting. An editorial on something called allowed. Not a loud like noise is loud. Allowed like I'm allowed to do something. This is kind of a coaching moment for everybody who's going to be a beekeeper new or old on how do you allocate your time, and I'll explain when we get there. I have to take a moment and talk about the emphasis of backups for data on your computer. You'll learn why. Devastation avoided. I purchased a bunch of new hives to rear queens in. I'll talk about those. They're polystyrene love polystyrene and it gives me an idea to explore for 2021. I've published a bunch of videos out onto the Northwest YouTube channel 
and I'll give a quick preview of those. And, you know, who knows what else will fall into the show. But given all the stuff I'm going to talk about, I really feel like we should get started. So off to the local hive report. Local hive report. The breaking news is, wow, I avoided a catastrophe. I went out about an hour ago to take a look at the yard. I've been working on home project all day. Didn't get out to do anything with the bees. I'll explain why in a second. Uh, didn't plan to do anything this weekend with them. And found this huge branch had fallen off of one of the oak trees that sits behind the apiary. And it hit the cedar hive. Knocked it forward. The branch is about six inches at the part where it hit the hive and goes back to about eight or ten inches at its base. It fell right in the yard next to the broodminder pole but didn't hit the broodminder, and it hit the hive, knocked it forward askew, but the base was uh, set up with a cinder block. I think it might be the only hive I do have a cinder block sitting on the base. It pushed the hive forward a little bit, turned it sideways, and it knocked the roof ajar, but it didn't knock the hive over. And the branches are all in behind. If you go to facebook.com slash beekeepers corner, you'll see a video I posted live where I went out and discovered it, shot a short little thing, but wow, that's a, that's a heck of a thing. Now I got to get the chainsaw out, cut that tree up. It's as big as a small tree and it was only a branch. The, the oak trees that I have in my yard are 20, 30, 40 inches in diameter. They're 100 years old when we find them. Anyway, going through the yard, all the hives are flying. They look good. I uh, made a change on pad number two, which was the nucleus that was in a polystyrene nuke. I had put that special setup that I got from Doug Potter in there, and then I ended up having to use that setup for something else, which I'll talk about. So I put it in conventional nucleus boxes. And then the first hive, which was the split from the aggressive hive that I ended up euthanizing. This was the million dollar question. How did that thing turn out? Well, when I started going through it, uh, the commentary goes this way. I made the split and I put a queen excluder above the entrance so that the drones couldn't fly out. Yes, they had a small hole at the top entrance. But my hope was that the drones were going down and they would get trapped at the queen excluder and they wouldn't be out in the neighborhood. Through attrition, the nasty bees would go out. And I did two inspections of that hive and noticed that the hive did settle down a little bit. In the end, I went and looked at that hive and I had a plan to break it up for queen rearing and use it as source material because I knew it was nasty and I needed it to requeen. I will tell you that the morning that I broke it up, it was um, Friday the 3rd. It was not the most pleasant hive to work. Mostly because I was pretty ham-handed in how I tore it apart. But what I ended up doing was taking two brood chambers out, putting them on a stand, wheeling them, putting them in the back of my car, and transporting them out to a place where we broke them up into a bunch of different hives. They were not happy about it. Yeah, I got stung a couple times. But still, 
as testy as they are, they're nothing like the super massively aggressive hive that I ended up putting down. So from that standpoint, now I'm hoping to put new queens across all of them and it will completely change their demeanor and continue to break them up. Now, when I broke that hive up, I had two deeps and a medium. I took the medium, which I think had some brood in it, but in that morning I didn't even check it out. And I put it back with some honey supers and made an all medium hive. There's three mediums. Now today when I looked at the hive, it was flying like crazy. And next week when I look at it, I will go in and see if they have a queen. If they don't, I'll supply them with one of the new queens that we're rearing. Or I'll do something with them, I'm not sure. But I'm guessing that they did okay. Now we went through the two boxes that I pulled off. It did not find a queen. Now, did we miss the queen? No. <laughs> because there were 20 frames in that box. And Bob Kloss and I both took a frame out. We each took a single frame. Looked at both faces. Then swapped. Looked at it. And then we shook it in a box that had a queen excluder on. And looked for the queen in the shaker box. The same way Michael Palmer does it. Credit to him for this shaker box. So we're positive when we created those eight chambers that there was no queen in it. Well, there had to be a queen in that hive because they were laying. Now, one thing that could have happened is maybe it swarmed. And we did find queen cells in there. And we crushed all the queen cells. So it's possible that that hive swarmed away. I don't know. But my guess is when I go through it next weekend, I'm going to find that queen. So it's just the ongoing saga of what's going on with that walkaway split that was made from the nasty hive and trying to remediate at least that part of it. The thing that I did this week was go down to pad number eight and I did a mite check on the nucleus box that I was using to raise frames for my top bar hive. I had a, an epiphany for that hive. I was going to pull the six frames which were ready to go and had some brood on it and put them in the top bar hive. But it dawned on me that I could steal the polystyrene nuke, which is six frames, take those six frames and put it in that polystyrene box and take that up to the park where we put them and give it a queen and make sure that I did not take the queen out of that nucleus box. So this is the score. New queen that we reared at Bob Gloss's place. In that box, six frame nuke up at the park. And she was emerged. So hopefully she went out, got made in, and is coming back. And next weekend, when that queen is ready to go, I could go get that box, bring it back, and put them in the top bar and they'll have a queen and brood and ready to go. On the flip side, the hive that I left, the nuke, which had the false floors in them to build more nuke boxes, more nuke frames, maybe they'll be done or they'll start. So I'm putting that nuke to, to use to try and build six more frames. And if all the timing works out, when I bring everything back to the yard, put it in the top bar, 
maybe I'll be able to go and get a couple more frames that were started by the nucleus colony and put them in there and I'll have a good population to take through the rest of summer and into fall and get the top bar to full strength by the time winter comes. So that was a really made up plan that emerged on the fly. And I, I've skipped all over the place, but I'll fill in some of the gaps of that as I go along here. I was saying that I took a mite check of that nuke. No mites. That's the good news. The next one is my polystyrene hive. Now this hive made four boxes of honey and is still going. It has two honey supers on it and both of them are full. Thing is amazing. We harvested a um, hundred and something pounds just off that box and it has two more left. I shot a video, which I'll talk about later, about that hive and doing the mite check. And this is what I want to tell you. This is a public service announcement. You need to really pay attention to this. I can tell you that I can't count on both hands how many times somebody said to me, my hive died. It was the best hive I had. Dozens of times people have told me this. You know what? A good hive that makes lots of honey and has a great population and an amazing spring makes lots of mites. And when I did the mite check on that, it was loaded. Threshold, pff, there was 26, 28 mites in the sample, and I didn't really bother. When I shook it and held it up, all I could see was look like a snow globe of mites. That's not funny at all. It makes me kind of mad at myself for not checking that hive earlier in the year, but I was distracted by the euthanizing hive, euthanization hive and didn't get a chance to get to this one. We're at that point in June, late, mid to late June, going into July where it's hot. Now I've pulled my honey, I've gotten, got all the honey I want, and now it's time to consider treatment. I had Formic Pro ready to go, and that's what I wanted to use this year. I've kind of made this pseudo decision, even though I have some in the cabinet, that I don't want to use synthetic miticide meaning Apovar. There's been conjecture whether it works or not. I trust John Gott. He did some checks, and he says it's still doing what it's supposed to do. But still, I didn't want to put it in my hives. To use Formic Pro, you have to get to the right temperatures. And unfortunately, it's been 90-plus degrees through mid to late June. 90 degrees every day. I know for a fact with Mitaway Quick Strips, the predecessor, and Formic Pro, that if you're in the high, mid to high 80s, you're in trouble. And if you're in the 90s, it's a no-go. The other thing I know about these products is if you use them, it's really like the first two or three days when they gas out the most. And this is where you can really cook your hives. So I was looking, begging for a window of opportunity to have the possibility to put Formic in my hive, in that hive. And the other thing I wanted to do, but unfortunately it rained and work prevented me from doing it, was get in and do mite checks for my other hives. I reached a crescendo. 
I don't know whether it was Saturday or Sunday, I forget my notes, last week, a rainstorm came in, and after the rainstorm came through, the temperature plummeted to 70 degrees. And this was at 6 at night. And I knew it was my opportunity to go out there, and I had been watching the weather, I knew this was going to happen, and it was 70 as a low that night into the morning with a high of 82, 84 the next day. That's about the threshold. When it gets above 85, I don't want to use the stuff. Even though it says in there you could use it from the packaging out of memory, read the package, follow the instruction, up to 92 or something. So I decided I was going to put it in that hive. And I decided since I'm doing queen rearing, I'm going to put it in the other hive, kill the mites. And since I'm opening it and I have the package open, you know what? When you treat one hive and you treat the others, you're supposed to treat them all at once. Well, I didn't have a chance to do mite checks. Shame on me. So, you know what? I just broke all my hives open and treated them. And for what it's worth, I even treated the one that had low mites. I just figured it was a good insurance policy. The bad news is when I came out the next morning, holy cow, even though it was 70, it nuked the hives. Uh, the cedar hive and the eight frame hive both had huge mortality. There were several dozen bees dead on the landing board and bees crawling in the grass just nuked them. Hopefully I didn't kill my queen. They were dragging out some larva. Now, is that terrible? Yeah, of course it's terrible, but it's not terrible, terrible. This is expected when you have high temperatures and you're using this stuff. I knew when I put that in, as soon as I put it in, there's a huge buzz and the bees all retract from it. And you knew it was going to be bad. Now, one thing to share about this. Last year, I talked about purchasing and doing the research and whatever on a mask. No, I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about an acid cartridge mask. I used my acid mask with a face shield and gloves, and I have to say huge success. Now, this is going to sound stupid, but I didn't smell that stuff at all. I've been brave in the past on cooler days to put Mite Away quick strips in, and yes, you could smell it. And let me tell you, if you get a whiff of that stuff, it'll really set you back on your heels. Well, I worked in that temperature, and I I know the bees responded to it immediately, and I could not smell even a whiff of any of the product, Formic Pro, on all the hives. So I took my time methodically from pad number one to pad number eight and went through and put treatments on every hive. Now, uh, yeah, look, I'm full disclosure, and sometimes I'm just an idiot. You're really not supposed to use this stuff on nukes, but I took pads apart in the, not thinking, I was rushing, it was dark, almost, you know, it was getting late. I opened the formic and I put the pad on. And when I got to the third hive, I realized that inside <laughs> there were two pads stuck together in the packet. Now, you have to forgive me, it's been years since I used this, and it never dawned on me, and I didn't think anything of it. 
Finally, when I put one of the boxes down over the pads and, it, and the box was wobbling, sitting on the pad, I'm thinking, that's weird. <laughs> I said, oh, God, you idiot. What an idiot. I had one of those, like, how the hell could you be so stupid moments? <laughs> so that's why I ended up treating all my hives. That's actually what the catalyst was. Now I had extra pads all the way across. I wasn't planning on treating my nukes, but I took the extra pads and I put one on all of them. So yeah, full disclosure, I'm an idiot sometimes, and I could back that up. We all have those moments in beekeeping. You know, I, I'm not afraid to say this because I talk to some people who I know are the smartest beekeepers I've ever encountered, and they tell me these dumb stories too. Everybody does it. So uh, maybe I do it more often than others. I hope not. It gets recorded more often, that's for sure. <laughs> so anyway, anyway. I hate when, I hate that. Anyway, in transition, all the hives have uh, formic on them. And I'll go through, and I will take the time afterwards and do my checks. You know, to me, when you find, and this is a master beekeeper lament, if you find a percentage of your hives have high mites, it doesn't matter whether the other ones are clean or not. The common wisdom is treat them all. You don't have to sample the ones. If a percentage has high mites, you could assume or should assume that they should all be treated in a yard if they're close together. So, okay, I don't think what I did was that egregious, but this is the piece of it is I will go back and say that after you're done, you should do mite checks on all of them to find out whether it was effective or not. doesn't matter whether they didn't have mites. You want to make sure they don't have mites after you're done. So local hive report, uh, good. I think I'm in a good place. All my hives are still flying. I didn't kill any of them. They didn't abscond. And I'm interested to see what shape they're in. My goal is to get them low mites going into winter so that they can build now, summer, fall, all the way through healthy bees. And I plan to do an oxalic acid vaporization when the weather gets colder. So I'm happy with the plan so far. Local hive report, check. Let's go to topic number one, honey harvesting. The topic number one, pulling honey is always something that is a love-hate relationship. Sometimes it's a lot of work, but this year I had a plan to shoot video for it all and document it. And over the course of it, I really got to scrutinize how the whole effort went. Now, the funny thing about harvesting honey is the perception of a beekeeper, and especially for those who have done it before. It, it does become part of a chore, I guess. Uh, if you think back to that first year, that glorious year, the joy of tasting the honey and learning how to get it out of the comb, the clumsy way to extract it where you have 80 million pots all over the kitchen and odds and ends. I don't know of any beekeeping task that evolves more over time with experience and we certainly don't harvest honey in the same way we did as when we got started. So in this topic, I'm going to come back to center on this task and talk about the experience that we've gained. We'll follow the journey from hive to carve to extract to bottling. And I said carve, such an odd term to describe what happens, but really you're carving off or shaving off the wax capping and a lot of the magic of honey harvesting is finding your zen 
and I'll talk about the various options in my experience with them. The first aspect jumping in of the journey is to get the honey off the hive. It starts with the assessment of the hives that have honey to harvest. Most times it means a stack of extra boxes over the brood chambers. And conventionally, if you do it the normal way, it means medium honey supers. Supers, short for superior, infers that they are on top, and that makes inspection for readiness optimal. Suit up, small amount of smoke at the entrance, little puff under the inner cover when you get in there, and pull a frame to get a sense of readiness. That'll give you your plan of how much you need to harvest. And you do this ahead of time. You don't do it literally the moment you're going to pull them. At least I don't. When it comes time, and by the way, what was I looking for? Are they capped or not? What's the state? Is it nectar or is it dried to the point where it's honey? I like to bring a card out with large sheets of coroplast plastic. I set one on the bottom of my cart and I leave another one free. If you go into the frames and see they're capped, you're good to pull your honey. Uh, Kevin moment. Why is the beekeeping industry term pull? Take, harvest, that makes sense as a descriptor, but pull, it's an odd descriptor, isn't, isn't it? Why do we pull our honey? Hmm. End of Kevin moment. When you find frames that are good to go, <laughs> You can go one of two routes. You could take the whole box or you could take the frames out of the box and replace them with something. To me, the reasons for one versus the other often has to do with what you find and sometimes with what time of year it is. In the spring, during the height of the nectar flow, you usually just take the box, at least I do. The whole thing is capped and you could take every frame. You would anticipate in the height of the season that frame one to frame 10 fully capped, ready to go. But if they're not all capped by my way of thinking, I would expect that you would wait a little bit longer until the bees finish the job because you're in the throes of the season and still stay with the plan to take it box and all. Now, other times you're not in a nectar flow or some circumstance dictates that you want to simply harvest a couple cap frames there's reasons why you're not going to take the whole box. Whatever the case, what you're looking for is you'll pull the capped ones out, you'll put them in a spare box, you replace the frames or pull it off, do whatever you're going to do with it, but you're not taking the whole thing out. Whole boxes or frames, it's clear that when you pull the honey, you do not want bees in it. Hello? So one decision you have to make is how do you get the bees out of the super and back into the hive? There are devices that employ escapes. It's a one-way path for the bees to go down into the hive, but they can't come back. Examples, Porter Bee Escape that sits in the hole of the inner cover. An eight-way escape board. Or more specifically, and most people would go this route, a triangle escape board. There are a couple options you have. These are passive, chemical-free, mechanical methods, and they work if this is your preference. They require additional planning though, because it takes time for the bees to clear out and you have a piece of equipment committed to the hive that has to sit there until the mission is accomplished. So you need a bunch of them if you have more than one hive. 
or you could do one hive at a time. I personally have had mediocre to no luck with these things. I come back and look at them and there's still bees in there. Now I know beekeepers who use these with great success. And I always feel like if there's any uncapped honey, the bees are not going to leave it because they want to stay and cap the honey. If it's all capped, eventually they'll go down into the hive to do whatever else they're going to do. There's no reason to hang out there. And a lot of times you're finding the bees are sleeping up there and they're going to go down. Uh, there's another way, multiple ways, to get it off. But one that I've never tried, which is a blower. Some beekeepers use this effectively, and I would speculate this is more prevalent on the commercial side or sideliner person than the local backyard person. You literally stand the hive body up on the short end and use a blowing device, leaf blower, running no more than half throttle, please, or some dedicated blower device made from the industry. Yes, they have them. There's even talk of people using shop vac in reverse to blow out the bees. I think a few things come to mind when considering this method. The first one is that most people own gas leaf blowers. I don't want to be blowing exhaust fumes sucked in by the blower coming around out of the exhaust from the motor in through my supers. So we think if you're going to do this, hopefully you're thinking of an electric blower. They probably work. I, I don't think there's any reason why. Um, and one thing I questioned about that is what if the queen happened up into the super and you're blowing her out into the yard? I mean, it is possible she could be up there. I would want to make sure I check all of them or say a little prayer before I fire up the blower. You could use queen excluders to make sure your queen never gets up into those. And then you'll be assured that you won't be blowing her out into the wind. The other way, my preferred method is a fume board. Fume boards are sold in bee catalogs. They employ a felt or carpet interior for this specially made box. The purpose of the material is so you can spray it down with a repellent. And when you place it on top of the hives, the bees retract from the honey supers because of the smell of the repellent. Often when you find a fume board, it has a dark cover. That's so it heats up in the sun. The heat transferred down to the chemical will make a gas off and change from a liquid to the gas that drives the bees down. Of course, you need the repellent as part of the system. And I purchased a product called Honey Robber. I bought it a while back and I've been using it successfully for many seasons. Honestly, I'm waiting for it to be done and I'm down to about a third of it left. There's a number of repellent products out there. One of the more popular, a little bit pricey, is Fisher's Bee Quick. And the reason is it's said to have a nice odor, where some of the others do not. If you look in the catalog, there's Honey Bee Gone and a bunch of different ones. I only know that Fisher's Bee Quick has a notoriety of being uh, one that smells good like maraschino cherries. The one that we have... Uh, wait a minute. Kevin moment. 
I'm going to ding every time I see something. The video, Euthanization of a Hive, has 1.7 million views as of today. It's been up for like three weeks. And the comments just come through, and it's like a ticker tape. Every time on my computer, somebody replies, like every three minutes, one pops up. So through the episode, I'll ding every time I see one. It's been actually pretty quiet for these last whatever number of minutes. End of Kevin moment. Fishers be quick. Nice odor. Other ones, not so sure. Ours is hit and miss on the odor. Its primary ingredient is butric acid, which is tolerable for some and others, it is vile. You simply squirt the repellent on the carpet, turn it upside down over the honey box, and in short order, you'd be able to remove the box from the colony. Well, kind of. It seems there's always some bees who don't get the message. I don't know what it is about them. I find it's easy enough, though, when most of them are out, that you could just brush them off. You just take the box away from the hive and sweep out any of the stragglers before putting the coroplast back over top of it. That's why you had the second one to close it off and taking it out to wherever you're going to harvest it. I immediately cover any box that I take off with the coroplast. One of the other things that I've noticed is um, every once in a while when you do that, if you pull the card away, I have a card, and you take the cover off, you'll find that the bees, when they see the light, will come out automatically and fly back to the hive. It's just a behavior I noticed, so I'll tell you about that. With the honey off, I'll move on. It's time for processing. In the past, when we were first getting started, we used to do this in our kitchen. We would make a mess. We did some of it in the garage. You drip honey all over the place. We were putting it in our pots and pans, bringing it in, scooping it out, putting it in jars. If there's any place that you should make an investment, if you plan to be a beekeeper for any period of time, or you've been one for at least three years and you know you're not going to throw in the towel, it's with some honey harvesting equipment. We bought an uncapping tank, which is really useful because you uncap it and everything falls into the tank and then the honey drains through the holes and you can get that honey, you'd be surprised how much is there. Now you have an uncapping tank, you need to get the wax off the cappings, off the frame, wax cappings off the frame. Wow, I have a funny roll tonight. There's so many different tools. You see the magic tool, this single uncapping scratcher thingy. It's got the blade where the person draws it and they clean it. No, I don't agree. Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, they're okay. And the thing that I know with those, you have to know what I'm talking about. If you're a beekeeper and you have any feeds, you'll see that thing. It's advertised every summer around this time. It's got the tines that sit and go underneath the capping and the person just draws it across the frame and it looks magical. Hey, there's a comment on euthanizing. Um, it's, it's not, no, it just doesn't work like what they show. If, 
one thing about it is it digs in too deep and it pulls a lot off. I don't particularly like that. So I, I won't just, enough, I'll, I'll get off of that. A bread knife, a simple bread knife. It's long, it's thin, and it's made to cut slices through bread, and it reaches across the entire frame, and it does a great job. We bought Cutco knives when we were young, because someone we know got into Cutco, and we bought them from them to be nice. And they're okay knives. Uh, I don't know that they're the greatest knives, but the bread knife is great, and it works. To that end, what's like a bread knife? The thing you carve your turkey with at Thanksgiving. The electric carving knife is the step up from the bread knife. It has a long blade. They're thin. They're motorized. And they cut through and they have quite a bit of dexterity. Now you're going to see when I shot the videos of the various tools that one that we have is an electric uncapping knife. We have two of them. We didn't buy them. Um, my wife's aunt bequeathed them to us at some point when she didn't do honey anymore. They work great, especially when the honey comb extends past the frame. Now, here's the thing about an electric knife. They're a little pricey, but if you know how to use them right, they work great. You have to start at the top of the frame. Most people make the mistake to start at the bottom and they carve up because it's natural to feel that you want to do that. When you carve up, the wax goes over the blade, which is heated, and it caramelizes it, melts the wax, and the wax falls back onto the frame. You, you could tilt it forward, but it's kind of weird to carve up with the frame leaning over. And it's still all the sugar and whatever goes over. So here's the tip here. Start at the top and carve from the top down. It'll just peel right off and everything coming rolls out and away from the knife and it never melts against the knife. Now they sell two different types of hot knife. One of them is a just plain calibrated thermostat ready to go knife and another one has a box or a dial on it and the dial adjusts up or down and you could use that to set the temperature if it's getting too hot. I like the electric knife, but it's not for everybody, especially when you look at they cost, I think they're like $150, $200. There is a device out there that you don't have to take the capping off. It's a needle roller or a needle pin roller. Sometimes they look like plastic spikes. They're made of stainless steel or plastic. Don't buy these things. They're like a roller that you roll up and down. They prick holes or punch holes in the capping, and the holes are supposed to allow the honey to come out, and you don't have to uncap. The problem with this is as they're doing it, they're tearing the comb all to shreds, the capping and the comb itself. And what you end up having is all these shards of wax capping floating on honey, and it does a lot of damage to the comb. And then when you spin it out, all of that debris gets into your honey in the extractor and it ends up clogging your filters. It's an awful device. Don't do it. Last one I'll talk about is a heat gun. You could use a heat gun. 
on the low setting, some people do it on high, I prefer low, if you pass the heat gun over the wax, it melts it. You want to have the frame laying flat, not tilted up. What ends up happening is as the wax melts, it draws back and it sits on the edge of the cell. Now sometimes it puddles over the cells and makes it caps the differently, but it opens most of it up. What I find is if you go slow with with the heat gun, you could just pass it back and forth and you find that rhythm and it does. It opens it up. It's kind of funny because uh the wax opens melts away and exposes the honey. Now the one thing about both the heat gun and the heat knife is sometimes they leave a sheen of wax that closes all the holes. You thought you uncapped it and you didn't. With the hot knife, if you use it properly, you don't have this. If you linger too long, you get wax melted and it recloses. The good news is the centrifugal force in the extractor helps to spin that out and you don't have to worry about it. Now, when you're in the heat gun and you're melting and it all draws back, it makes puddles all over the place of melted wax. You could take your uncapping scratcher, which I'm going to leave for last, and pick at it. And it's easy to pick all that stuff off because most of the wax is broken up and it's not as complicated as doing it from scratch. So the last tool, the one that every one of you should have if you're doing this, is an uncapping fork or an uncapping scratcher as it's called. And I know from beginnerhood that a lot of people use this thing wrong because of the word scratcher. You don't scratch your comb with it. You take the tines and you insert them flat against the comb and underneath and you pick up. And when you do, you pull the entire wax coating off. So it's slide under, pick up, slide under, pick up, slide under, pick up. And the tines are flat on the face of the comb, not at an angle. Now, some people turn them so they're straight up and down and they scratch the wax off. That's not the way it's meant to use. Now, sometimes you could use that to clear off some of the debris, but go under and, and like a pick, 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 pick. If you get good at this tool, one, they're cheap. They're like six bucks for a plastic one. Maybe you spend a little bit more on a, on one that is stainless steel. But they're very fast. And all the other methods that I talked about, which is why I saved this for last, sometimes leave comb uncapped. If there's divots in the comb because the bees didn't build it out past the face and the knife didn't get it, or they just made weird comb because the comb next to it was pushing out and this one is concave, convex, whatever the shape may be, the uncapping tool will solve that problem for you and get in and pick all the nooks and crannies. Sometimes when you slice off, you leave that little half-inch ridge along the wood because it didn't get those. You can pick those with the uncapping fork. So whatever your preference is, uncapping fork should be in your box. Now I went through all those. You're going to ask me which one is the best. I think the bread knife works the best personally, and with the uncapping fork. Those are the two that I would have. Now, I also have a cold uncapping knife. This is just a sharp knife that has a heavy-duty blade, long. They come serrated sometimes. Ours is not. 
they're okay. Some people put them in hot water, heat them up, and then it's a cheap version of a heated knife. In fact, you could buy two of those, keep them in heated water, use the first one till it cools off, take it out, plunge it, and take the other one out, and you'd have like an electric kettle or something. They work really actually pretty well. They're as good as a hot knife when you get them working right. So you have all kinds of options. When it comes to extractors, extractors are extractors. Manual, electric, four frame, nine frame. They all do the same thing. They spin the frames and they wing out the honey and it goes down in the bottom of the tank and it comes out the port. The only guidance I have here is make sure you keep the thing closed. When the extractor is spinning, it's creating like a fan inside that basket moving around and it creates an air vortex and it carries all these micro particles out and if you have the lid open for whatever reason you'll end up with sticky hair on your arms ask me how i know so keep the lids on it when it comes out of the gate that's the term of the port on the bottom of the extractor it goes into a bucket hopefully now we've done it into a bunch of different vessels. I would say, even if you're a first year beekeeper, invest in food safe bucket with a gate, honey gate on it. The point is, is you're going to put a filter over that, filter it right in the bucket, and then right from the bucket, you could put it in a bottle. In the years when we did it before we had this, we would put it in a pot, take it out and strain it in the kitchen, then scoop it out and put it in a jar. And like I said at the opening, it's a sticky mess. Don't do that. Even if you're a brand new first year beekeeper, go buy a honey bucket. They're not that expensive with a gate on it. And put a filter underneath where it's coming out of the extractor and filter it right into your bucket. And then you could put your bucket on a table and open the gate and fill your jars. That's the magic of it. I don't need to say anything more than that. Ultimately, I will tell you that when I finish the video that I'm going to produce, you can see all of this. Everything I just described in long narrative is out there with demonstration of all the different tools and some that I left out. There's other tips and tricks, but I'm going too long. So uh, just keep your space enclosed. Do it in the summertime while the honey's still hot. And let me think if there's any other key, key things. Uh, I think that's good enough. I would encourage you to go watch the video when it gets published. And you'll hear about that by the end of the episode. Honey harvesting. It's a joy. Uh, it's so nice when you get done and you step back and you look at all the jars that you have. <laughs> You know, we've always used uh, old jelly jars and whatever we find. And when we buy honey, we keep the jar. This year, we actually went and bought legitimate two-pound queen line or gambered bottles. It was amazing. It's so nice when it's in a real jar. You almost want to put a true label on it, which, yeah. Honey harvesting, I hope that was useful to anybody. I was as detailed as I think I wanted to be. Um, for those of you that are new and didn't have some of these insights, I hope you picked it up. And even if you're not new, maybe I've guided you in some new ways or 
told you a little bit about um, things to consider. So look on our website, bkcorner.org or youtube.com slash nwnjba for the honey harvesting video to come in the next week or so. Topic number two, this one is NICO, part one. I think to be an accomplished beekeeper at queen rearing requires experience. I find it hard to believe that any first timer could sit down, study a bit about queen rearing and then go out in the yard and graft or raise queens with ease. I'm sure some do it, but that being said, uh, I don't believe that many of us have that Midas touch and even some will never find the magic practice and all. It's one of those frustrating things, I think. My first direct experience with queen rearing occurred by accident on the day that I was traveling in Italy, and my hotel told me where I could find a local beekeeper. I dropped in on Giancarlo in 2016. He didn't speak any English, and he didn't know why I was there. I've told this story before on the podcast. But by serendipity... He was gracious enough to accommodate me on that day, and he was grafting queens. And I was in wonder, watching him select the right age larva, prime his cups with royal jelly, pick the larva after larva. It was a demonstration of mastery that even in my ignorance at the time of what it was, I'd seen videos and heard about it, and talked about it, but never seen it in person, and I so appreciated what he did. You know, there was a comical moment there when he gestured to me to give it a try. But after two attempts of trying to pull a larva, he shooed me out of the way. <laughs> I've seen people grafting prior to that, but I had never done it. And it was embarrassing. But that day, thinking back, sparked the interest to want to be able to do this someday. The following year, I took up Bob Kloss's offer to try and do that. And the last couple of years have not been overly fruitful, but they did provide practice. This is year three for trying to raise queens in earnest. And last year, Bob and I practiced with his Nyko device, along with grafting. And he seemed to think it was a bit fussy, but I saw the light after seeing how it worked. Giancarlo and Nyko adds up to Kevin thinking, there's a way to master this thing by mixing techniques and achieving the best of both worlds. Well, why does it take experience to do this? In a nutshell, mastery, the word I'll use, requires several success criteria in order to hit the mark of being able to rear queens. You need to know the right age of the queen source material. If you're grafting, you physically need good vision and a deft touch to graft out of the cell. You also need, and this is underestimated I think in a lot of beekeeping, a deft touch to use the grafting tool to actually place the grafted material into the bottom of the cup. You need to know the biology of the cell builders and finding queens so that you can remove them to make queenless colonies and other management practices in well, that I happen to say that this is kind of hard for anybody that's new and doesn't grasp all these elements. And if you screw one up, 
then you screw it up. You don't get queens. So it's not a great endorsement for wanting to raise queens, but there's a bright spot in this whole thing. I spent the winter digging on the Nyko device because I sense a formula that can be exploited. And me being me, I need to know more. And I really feel like Nyko opens up an opportunity for new beekeepers who have never done queen rearing. So Bob had one last year. We put it in, but in practice it was cool, but it didn't work. I think the mistake we made, if I think back now, is we chose eggs. We were in a hurry and we just decided, you know, these are eggs. They'll emerge in a couple of days. It doesn't work that way. You put an egg out of a Nyko device in a queen cup and ask them to make when the egg emerges it, they're not going to do it. So that didn't work. All around the web, there are tales of the allure of this device, but dead ends for everyone. And yet to me, why shouldn't it work? It's an enigma because it holds so much promise. Like I said, I think for the beekeeper who wants to get in this as an entry. Now I recognize that learning to graft, and I'm doing that too, is well time spent. But in turn, I'm still intrigued about unlocking the potential of this device. And the main reason is a word I'm going to use, graftless, graftless. That's the key advantage of NICO. That's probably the hardest part for the newbie to figure out is how to graft. Is that a word, graftless? I might have made that up. The queen is placed in the cartridge of the NICO device, and she has no choice in her confinement to lay in plastic cups which you pluck out and you put in the cell bar and put in your cell builder and they make queens out of them. So Bob and I have been learning over the last few seasons and I've been following his lead on grafting and I've read books and articles and watch movies. Uh, the book I've read, I mentioned this, Grant Gilliard, I think is his name. It's pretty insightful and it takes you through the whole process. But still, there's nothing like doing it yourself. To cut to the chase, I think it went really well this year. Honestly, I'm excited about the outcome. And the funny thing is, so is Bob. I've kind of turned him, converted him. Going in, he's like, why are we doing this? And I'm like, you gotta, you got to stay with me here. Bob has some pretty cool queens in his colonies in his yard. And that's why we're eager to graft from what he has. He has exposure to a bunch of different stuff. Queens that he's getting that are carniolians, things that are hygienic, feral bees that he's received. One of his queens has been laying after four years. We grafted from it this year. Another was rescued from a feral colony that was cut out of a tree from deep in the woods. So what went well? I think anytime you have a chance to learn, it's a great experience. And both Bob and I have these devices and deployed them this year. So we did two of them. My cartridge was a true Nyko device. After reading that you should buy the true Nyko device, not knowing the reasons why, but everybody said that's the right thing to do. Bob, not knowing that wisdom, just bought one. And I think he bought it from Amazon or whatever. And it's not a true Nyko device. 
that showed up in our experience. And it was great serendipity that we used both devices because we were able to compare and contrast them. The first part of the plan was putting the equipment together for me. Bob already built his last year. I don't like plastic foundation, but in this case, I thought it was the best place to go for mounting the cartridge. I was able to use my oscillating tool to cut out the space for the cartridge and I mounted it and then popped the plastic in and coated it with wax that I melted out of my solar wax melter. The benefit for using plastic around the cartridge is it's only secured by two or three screws up in the top and because it's nested sitting in and I cut it with tight tolerance to the plastic, it's kind of supported all the way around. Not a dig on Bob, just a contrast. His is secured to a bar, and he let the bees, like most people, build foundation or build comb down around them. It's not as sturdy. I was never worried when we took ours out and set it on top of a hive to work with it that I was going to do anything with the comb or have a problem with it. So both ways are fine. I would still prefer to go the route I did. Practically, the biggest benefit of all the work that I did looking into this was to teach me patience, something we didn't have last year. I told you we used eggs. This is the way it went. We put the Nyko device in with the queen. Almost everybody will tell you the queen doesn't lay the first day. In fact, it usually takes three or four days. But I know after a long amount of research that most people report it's actually five or seven days. So in two days, we went and looked, nothing there. Three days, four days. I think Bob was like, what's going on here? But I knew it was going to take seven days. Well, on the sixth or seventh day, that's when we saw eggs. So it takes six or seven days. Then you see eggs. Then it takes a couple days. And then you get to larva. So you're in for a little period of time. The reason I'm bringing that up right now is an important point of your cell builder. One of the things that Bob didn't count on was how long this was going to take. And when he prepped the cell builder, he had it built for a specific day and we had just gotten to eggs. Was it a big problem? No. We still used the cell builder and it was still had enough nurse bees, but the bees were a little bit older. So one of the things from a tip standpoint is if you're using a NICO device, Put the device in, wait three days, and as soon as you see the eggs, go prep your cell builder. Don't get ahead of yourself. That was something we learned, and we'll do differently next time. Now, the queen started laying, and we knew the day that we should see something in the cups. So we took the device out, got all the bees off it, put it down looked at it and we saw eggs in a bunch of the backs of the cups and we saw some of them that were misted. We looked at it and it almost looked like uh, condensation mist, fogged over. We said, well, we don't have any larvae. We wanted to see larvae and you didn't see any. So we put it back. <laughs> As you could tell by my chuckle, that was a mistake. The second day we brought it out, 
we realized that the misting was actually royal jelly from the bottom. Now, I had no experience with this, because remember the year before, we pulled eggs. And they said to look for royal jelly, but I didn't equate the misting to be royal jelly. When we popped them off, we found that the royal jelly ones from the day before had larvae that were even a day older, and they were a little bit big. If you think about the way an egg looks, an egg stands on end, then it lays down, and it forms kind of a comma, and then it forms a C, and then it forms a U, and then it touches and closes, and then eventually it stands back up as a pupa. You want it to be in the comma to C. That's the best layman's I can give you about what the shape of the larva should be, and there should be royal jelly. So here's the great thing about NICO. Compare this to grafting. When you have a grafting, you're trying to look down into a cell. You're usually wearing glasses or a magnifier glass. You're looking for evidence of royal jelly wet in the bottom, and you're trying to determine how old. Well, what we figured out, and this is why I always felt the NICO had appeal, is as soon as the egg on the day before changes to misted base, that's royal jelly, that's the day you take it. If you go in each day and look, and that's what we did subsequently, we went through every day and looked for the ones that had missed that weren't there the day before. Now, how did it turn out the first day? We looked, saw mist, didn't pull them. When in the second day, saw mist, pulled it, and had an older larva. It was C-shaped, almost closed. We took those off and we put them on the cell bar and we put them in the cell builder. Then we realized that they were too old. Now, would they have made a queen? Yeah, but you really want the one that's 12 hours old. So we ended up, because we had the ability to do it, of plucking those cell cups off the bar and going back the next day and finding the ones that were fresh, really new, just emerged, and put those in. And every day we went back through and looked. Now, we first looked at them from underneath, and we still didn't have that warm and fuzzy feeling about what we had. It was only till Bob pulled one out, held it up, looked through it, looking at the sun, that it became patently obvious what was in there. When you hold the cup up and you can look through it, you can literally see the larva swimming in the royal jelly. There is no doubt, no magnifying glass required, you see what's in there. And you know for a fact that you have the right age. Now, the only thing that I've seen that equates that when you're doing grafting is when you put a new frame in with black foundation and you let them draw fresh, fresh, fresh comb. And then you, the queen lays in it and somebody comes with a hive tool and scrapes all the wax off and you have nothing but little base cups with material. That's the closest thing to this. So after we figured out the hold it up to the light scenario, it was easy breezy. All we had to do every day is go in and look for one that had missed on the bottom, pluck it up, look at it, 
make sure that there was larva in them because sometimes there wasn't. And if there was, put it on the cup. We put it in the cell builder. We come back the next day and see whether the bees accepted it. They would either build it out and they'd be 20 bees on it or it would be empty and they weren't doing anything with it. If it was empty, we pulled it off. We picked out another one. Every day there was a new round of fresh eggs converted to larva for us to select. And we took a blue tape, blue painter's tape, and we wrote a number on it for the date. And if you see the frame that we had, it was like 21, 23, 25, 25, 25, 27. <laughs> That's what it looked like. Once the 21 got to the point where it was capped, we put a hair roller cage over it because there was no reason to let the bees have access to it. And eventually the queen emerged from that one, and that's the one we took. So there's more to say about this, but the general gist is we really um, think hit a good formula on this. I lamented in one of the last episodes about why you can't keep using a cell builder. Well, we found the answer out. <laughs> and it's experience that teaches you this. And I know somebody wrote in and said, you know, you said that thing and I too always wondered what the deal is. Well, I have the answer and I'm going to share it. <laughs> this Friday, after pulling all the cups we had that had capped and putting them in hives, we went and grafted out of the four-year queen, different hive, not out of the NICO. We literally used grafting tools, went in underneath the larva, pulled them out, put them in cups. JZBZ cups, and we put that in a cell builder. If you left bees, and Bob still were, was working on his NICO ones in there, his NICO cell builder cups were in there. They're still building them. They're all, I think all of them but one were capped. And we put another round in there, and they didn't touch them. So the reason you need to pull those is so that they're hopelessly queenless. If you have any cells that are started and in focus, don't know how the bees understand this, they're not like, mm, maybe these won't work, so I should do the other ones. They just completely ignore the other ones. So that's the answer. Now, if you finished your NICO queen rearing run, removed all of those, and left that hive hopelessly queenless, and put the grafted ones in, then it would work. So we're going to let Bob finish his NICO ones. Remember, we're, we're rookies at this. We're learning. His NICO ones should be finished in a day or two. We'll pull those out. And then what we're going to do is replenish the cell finisher. We're going to take frames of capped brood and put them in there so that bees emerge and are new. And we're going to put some pollen in and we're going to keep feeding that hive and leave it queenless. And we're going to graft again. And the grafting was great practice. And we're going to see if we can graft from the four-year-old queen directly. So queen rearing 2020 looks great. Really, really happy with the way things are going this year. Uh, I should say that I harvested nine queens off my bar out of ten. One didn't take. 
the day we went to go pull Omo and put him in Queen Castles, one queen had emerged and they ignored her and she starved. She was dead in the bottom of the hair roller cage. So fortunately, we got in and got the other one that had emerged and we put her in a nuke. So the one that did emerge is the one that went in the six frame polystyrene nuke that's in there for the top bar hive that I mentioned in the local hive report. The rest of them were all queen cells, decent size, well formed, and placed in three frame mating nukes inside, which I'll talk about a little later. One thing I'll say about it, Bob taught me this, we put an empty frame next to the Nyko cage. And the bees drew comb in there. I've often seen, and we experienced over the last couple of years, that when you do put a queen cell in there building it out, if they don't have a place to build comb elsewhere in the hive, they end up building these big blob-looking queen cells. If you've ever seen anybody that shows your queens, and they're not the perfect little peanut, but they're built out, Chances are the bees wanted to build wax so much that they just kept building around the cell. Hey, there's a euthanizing a dangerous hive comment. Um, so Bob was smart enough to know that if you put an empty or partially drawn frame next to the frame where the Nyko device was, they would build that out and all of our queen cells were formed perfectly the way you would want them to look. So I was pretty excited to learn that. That was a great little tip. My plan is to do this for a couple of years, do this again next year, take notes of what I learned. But honestly, I think we learned so much this year. There's a couple other tips, but you know, again, running long, um, that, that we could share. Uh, one was when you take the cover off to get to the, to the caps, just tape the top off so the bees from the other side, including the queen, can't pass through and come out. Well, once you tape that off, there's no reason to untape it. So we tape the top off of the Nyko device and put the plastic cover right off, right over it. Next time we came out to get more cups to harvest, all we had to do was pop the lid off, not worry about any bees coming out. What I'm going to do is make a note to myself to come back to this topic, part two, and talk about the NICO device versus the non-NICO device and a couple of things we learned. So that'll show up in the next episode. So NICO, a year of learning and hopefully success. Don't know how those hives are doing. Uh, I know that the hive, the queen that was out in the hair roller cage, which I, that's got to sound strange to people. You take the cup and you put it in this little plastic fitting and the queen cell hangs down from the plastic fitting. They have this cage that looks like a 1950s hair roller that you would put in your hair back in those days. And you slide it up over the fitting and it provides a protective covering for the cell and it has a cap on the end that you can close. When you have a capped queen cell that the queen could possibly emerge, you don't want her to come out and go to everybody else. 
so you slide this hair roller cage over the fitting and close it. If the queen does come out, like we had, she wanders around in the cage. The bees have access to feed her, but she can't get out and go over and tear down the other cells, which would be a travesty. So now you know, if you didn't know, what I've been talking about for the hair roller cage. All right, so I have to make sure I make a mental note to come back to part two and discuss Nyko versus knockoff. And um, hmm, I'm hoping you're getting the gist that I think this is a, a good opportunity for people to get into queen rearing. And I plan to talk more about that in the future. I just need to do a little more homework on it before I can speak with any authority. Time to turn to the round table part of the episode. Back of the book, round table number one, I call this one aloud. Allowed is a concept that I've talked about a little bit on the show, but I thought I had an epiphany about how to discuss it and wanted to cover that here as a principle and see if you made a connection with this. As a new beekeeper or a seasoned beekeeper or someone that's just fanatical about beekeeping like me, you have to realize that beekeeping becomes this thing that takes time in your life and you have to figure out how to strike a balance with that. One of the more annoying things to family members for new beekeepers is when new beekeepers are so into their thing that they drive everybody nuts because everything they talk about is about beekeeping. Been there and done that met people that are there now and do that. And it's just a, a pin to put in for this topic. I want to talk about myself and then I'll come back to that notion. I lead an active lifestyle. Every moment I decide I'm going to be doing something, whatever it may be, but I try to steer myself towards the things that bring me enjoyment. That's obvious. Yeah. I think that's the, actual key to enjoying your life is make time to do the things that you like to do. Duh. And I like to do beekeeping. But there comes a part, especially as a responsible homeowner, adult, family man, husband, father, when that becomes a problem. And I must admit that I'm addicted. <laughs> I'm addicted. I've only met one other person that I know of that I thought, boy, that guy's, he's in trouble. Randy Oliver, when he came to visit me, he never stopped. He was on kill. I, you know, I thought when he came to New Jersey and he rode around and I drove him through town and I started talking about some of whatever, he could care less, <laughs> absolutely care less about anything to do with Flemington, New Jersey or whatever we were doing. It was 100% beekeeping. I thought that was, uh, an interesting impression of Randy Oliver. Say what you will about him. Uh, he is dedicated to the craft. I tend to temper myself with whoever my audience is. Uh, when I talk to people who are insanely crazy about beekeeping, I geek out. That's why I, I like to find those people. But Sharon, after a while, my lovely wife, she gets to the point where she's had enough 
uh, when the trash needs to come out, <laughs> I'm not a beekeeper. I'm a guy who needs to take the trash out. And I have the household chores. So, you know, there's times I find myself dedicating time to beekeeping and pushing really hard to accomplish certain goals. And I push the boundary and I find it um, challenging that I am stressing different dynamics of relationships because of it. So I came up with this idea of allowed. Allowed allows you to have an off switch. That's the way I want to put it. The thing came up also about other ways that I control my life. And I allow myself to work on specific things. And this is the epiphany of it. We were just having this conversation this morning, actually, over breakfast. Sharon was talking about uh, replacement windows in the house. We have a couple of sealed windows that are not sealed anymore. They're, they're, I don't know what happens to them. I'm working on a deck for the pool. And I am not going to allow myself to start talking about replacement windows when I'm trying to focus on get that job done. And the same thing comes with beekeeping. And I've talked about this dynamic in the past. This is where I've discussed it on the show. Of I'm not allowed to do queen rearing and other things when I was studying for my master beekeeper. But now that I'm done with that, I'm allowed to dabble in certain things. I'm allowed to put my top bar high back up. Oh, Kevin moment. I forgot to mention this in the local hive report. I pulled the plug on the Waray hive. I thought about making it one of the hives that I was going to rescue this year, but decided to focus the energy on the top bar and retire it. I'll bring it out next season. Unless somewhere down the road I find some colony, but the reason being is I did not think I could build it up to enough strength after rescuing it from being a working layer hive to get it to overwinter. The comb isn't there and other factors, and I just put it away, put it in the garage. So, end of Kevin moment. Allowed. This is how I manage things. I look at my schedule, both near-term and long-term, and I find blocks of time where I allow things. And this is how I found peace with Sharon. When we talk about what we're going to do this week or upcoming, I reserve time in the calendar. I'm going to do this on Saturday, but on Sunday I'm going to be in the bees. Most of the time I'm very clear to share with her when it messes up that I have to do something and, and it takes more time than I'm allowed, that there's a specific management practice or something that requires it. But I'm also very careful to schedule all my management practices around the periods when I'm allowed. So when you come back to new beekeepers or someone getting into this and they're struggling to find balance in how much time it takes for when it takes time, especially if you have an active lifestyle, you're going on vacation, you have kids that you got to go to soccer games and things like that. The one thing about beekeeping, for the most part, except for the tree falls in your apiary kind of scenario, is it's fairly predictable, especially the management season. You can lay out with pretty good reasonable success 
uh, what you're going to do most of the season, when you're going to do your treatment, when you're going to pull your honey, when you're going to make splits, do whatever you're going to do. I find time and put together all the things that I want to do on a list, and then I find the blocks of time and allow. And so this is why sometimes I talk about certain things. I have four or five things I'm not allowed to work on right now. Case in point, I've talked about it on this podcast, and everybody thinks I forgot about it, but I didn't. In fact, I was looking at it yesterday. At one point, I will be allowed to build my fish tank hive. I have all the parts and pieces sitting there, and I'm ready to build it. But the opportunity has to come that all the pieces come together. I have to build the mount and the frame. I was thinking actually about building that for winter and making an observation hive. Hey, there's a euthanization of a hive coming. Oh, I see. I missed one a few minutes ago. Anyway, um, yeah, so there's four or five I'm allowed projects sitting there. I'm waiting for time to be allowed to work on them. So do you do this? Is this common sense? I like this idea. I think it explains a lot of how you manage time when you're a busy person. You're going to put together time to commit to something. And then the good thing is you're allowed to work on it and you'll work on it well. And the question lies with experience of how much time you put aside for it. But uh, think about your beekeeping management practices and start to block off time and don't get too distracted with driving your family nuts or your significant other or your dog or whatever it is that is impacted by your over-exuberance. And the other thing is you also need to listen to that little voice and allow yourself to do the things that you really don't want to do. That's how you also find time to address the stuff that's been festering. Allowed. It's a great way to go. Roundtable number two, I want to talk about polystyrene six-frame nucleus colony queen castle. I have this funny thing about food. If you have to describe it with 17 words, it doesn't taste good. Case in point, I do not want to eat a pizza that is made with gorgonzola cheese laced chorizo with basil and grape sliced, you know, just stop it, <laughs> right? But in this case, more is better. I talk all the time about how much I love my polystyrene hive. And I, I've jokingly said that if there's a way that I could possibly sell all of my woodenware, my conventional Langstroth, I would switch to polystyrene nukes. Not too long ago, a listener sent me a nucleus colony, and I looked at the thing in both I like and I'm confused, and never realized until I had a moment of um, clarity the other day about this polystyrene nucleus. Doug Potter sent me this thing, and I think I've even mentioned on the show that I thought it was really strange that it was a six-frame nuke. Why did they do that? The polystyrene box is 10-frame, 
and the polystyrene box, you could put a conventional Lang box over top of it. So I like that. I have two poly hives, they're mediums that I use for honey boxes. And when I pull them off, I could put a regular medium over top of the hive. So I can't put a regular five frame nuke box on this hive. It doesn't fit on the top. I thought to myself, well, I have this six frame box and I really should see how well it's going to overwinter. A six over six, that's 12 frames. That sounds like a better way to go for a nucleus box. So I started looking on Blue Sky, which sells these, and Paradise, which also is where I bought my nucleus or my big hive from, and found out that the six frame nukes are for a purpose. And it draws me back to London, England, where I know a lot of people buy polystyrene nukes. They love to polystyrene their nukes. Well, it turns out that the Paradise B-Box is a six-frame nuke because it comes with a divider in the middle, and it has dual entrances, one that goes out the front, one that goes out in the back. And you could buy a coroplast sheet that goes in between the two, and voila, you have three frame queen castles. Now, if I come back to the queen castles, which I already created out of regular Langstroth boxes, I never liked them. They, they were fussy to make. They didn't do real well. And the dividers never divided well. The ones that I made, for whatever reason, the roof didn't sit on right and the bees could cross through. And, you know, the whole point of this is that you should not let them crossover. Well, when I found out that the six frame actually becomes queen castle, meaning you could divide the capacity of it in half and make two smaller hives, the light bulb went off. I'm rearing queens with Bob, as we talked about earlier, and I'm going to have all these queens. What am I going to put them in? I have a queen castle and I have some nuke boxes a five frame nuke with a lot of bees is a lot of bees to try and rear a queen which may or may not mate. Three frames is better. So this is harkens back to the hive that I divided up. What I ended up doing was purchasing a bunch of these nuke boxes to build a new arsenal. I now have four six over six configurations bottom boards double double deeps and roofs and i'm ready to go so i deployed four of them and put queens in them divided in half and if the queens take then i'll have eight hives and if the queens don't take i'll just pull the divider out and combine them and have a six frame nuke of bees so I thought, hmm, what about these things? What am I going to do with them other than raising queens in them? Queen castles. I could overwinter them, and I'm thinking a six over six. Hey. Hey, there's a comment on euthanizing a dangerous hot. Um, if I overwinter 12 frames... That would be perfect to stick in a spring colony, give new foundation to, 
and allow them to build up to a production colony across the nectar flow without swarming. So this is all part of the greater plan that I've allowed myself this year, tying it all together. I wanted to rear queens after the summer solstice, June 20th, because I want to test the theory that I know exists of queens raised after the summer solstice make amazing spring queens. Well, part one is you need to rear queens. Part two, it has to be after the summer solstice. Part three is you have to get them to overwinter. This is my best chance. And part four is come out of spring next year, I should have some banging hives if I can get them to go. There's one other little sidebar to this, and it has to do with the local movement. I don't know, local. I'm hearing a lot of it around here. I don't know if it's caught on nationwide, but never underestimate the power of Tom Seeley. Single deeps. Going back to smaller Darwinian chambers for our bees instead of the massive Langstroth hives that we have. Who says that I couldn't keep a six over six frame in production all year long and keep moving them into other six over six frame configurations and leave them that way? I've had so much luck with my polystyrene hive that this makes an interesting proposition. And I've always said that if I could move to all polystyrene, I would do it. This is the other benefit of this. I have these hives, six over six, in polystyrene. You know what I don't have to do this fall? Insulate my hives. So I think it's a win, 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 win. The only thing that frustrates me is how am I going to feed these hives? I don't have a six frame feeder. And I don't know that I want to go purchase a feeder. Now, one of the things I did for some of these hives is I built my own custom bottom boards for them out of two by fours. It was a bit of a project. I spent a day, part of a day doing it, but I thought they came out really well because I want to be able to take the singles and have uh, queen castles with them. That's a side project. We can talk about that some other time. But why can't I build my own feeders? That's where I think I'm going next. I built my own feeder for my Ware, and I think it would be pretty simple to fabricate four feeders to do four hives. And that's my plan. Four of these six over six to overwinter in a new condo. The funny thing about them is unlike the woodenware, I don't have to shove them all together. They're already insulated. So they are, I purchased them from Blue Sky. They're a little pricey, but I plan to keep them in operation for years and years and years. I painted them with my Drylock paint that I still had from the first hive that I painted. It's basement uh, concrete paint. You paint them once, they last forever. And I'm excited about these. I'm excited to work this into the operation. And I've tried to figure out a time to allow myself to do more polystyrene stuff. And all of these things, the queen rearing, the wanting to overwinter, raise bees in the summer solstice, provided the opportunity to pull the trigger. So, happy about that. Queen nuke. <laughs> Back to that pizza. <laughs> 
Queen Newcastle polystyrene overwintering thingamajig boxes. Yeah. Yeah. Loving it. Round table number three. I keep this quick because of the time. Public service announcement backups. I have terabyte drives. That probably seems odd to everyone because 90% of the people I know have a home computer with one or two terabytes and they don't use but a couple hundred gig. I shoot video everywhere I go. And the funny thing is, I don't think a lot of people know that. If you follow me on Instagram, Twitter, if you follow me on Facebook and Snapchat, you'll see I'm posting videos like all day long. That's where all these videos go on my phone and I save them all. Plus the videos that I shoot for the YouTube channels for racing and other things. Needless to say, I have terabytes of video that I've accomplished over the years. Sitting next to me on the table is a four gig Western digital black hard drive. I bought it in 2016. It's no 2014. It's six years old. It decided in a lightning storm last week that it was done. You know, it's on that four gig or four terabyte drive. All the videos I've ever shot, especially the beekeeping ones, family videos, all of it. The public service announcement is I'm safe. I tested my backups back in February. I tested them again in April. And as I speak, I'm downloading two terabytes out of crash plan back down to a new drive that I purchased and put in my computer. It's slow. Gigabytes come down. It's, I think it says it's going to take two and a half days for all this to come down. But I backed up all my podcasts, all my video, all my stuff. And I have a network attached storage in the house with terabyte drives. I have it backed up there. I have sitting next to me another external hard drive that has a four terabyte disc and I've copied all the videos earlier this year to that drive and I have it set on the side as a offline storage. I'm a bit paranoid and for a while I wasn't very good about this, but over the winter break, I made it a point to allow myself <laughs> to get this all in order. I organized, deleted all my stuff, did all my photos, did whatever. I think you heard me talk about that one time, but I am so thrilled to death. Now, did I lose anything? I might've lost a day or two. When I went and looked at crash plan, the last backup was 2.3 days ago. That's the reason why I haven't posted the honey processing video yet is because literally the day after I organized all the files, <laughs> Uh, the hard drive crashed. First one I've ever had, literally, ever crash on me. Most of them, you know, from 100 gigabit to 500 gig to 250, you get rid of them and you replace them with terabyte drives and you copy all the content over. But this is the first one I've ever had go south. So public service announcement to you. Back up your machines. I love crash plan. It's a, it's a, a necessary service. I, I have so much data that I consider myself a small business for the podcast. 
and I've signed up to the small business plan, which is what Crash Plan does. There's others out there like Carbonite and whatever. Yeah, back up your data, everybody. That's all. Roundtable number four, I want to talk about uh, videos. While I was just talking about that, um, youtube.com slash nwnjba. Some of the things I've spoken about are out there. And one of the ones I wanted to highlight was in the Bee Culture magazine for May. I think it's page 54 or 47 or something like that. They have that thing where they highlight people's inventions. And I'm sorry, I don't have my notes prepared. I'm really riffing tonight. Someone in there developed a capture device where you put a frame in between this device and you shake it down. And then you dump the bees into a container and you could do your mite samples. I looked at the device the guy made, and I really thought it was brilliant. Uh, it's called a bee collector. The device that he made is straight sides with a, a triangle bottom with a hole that he puts a container on. I thought that was kind of an odd shape and devised a different way to go about it. So the way mine works is it's a square box, but it's deeper than a regular frame. And it has a hole out one side with a spout. And on that, I affixed a plastic container that I got from powdered lemonade or iced tea. I bang the frame down, boom, and I tilt it sideways. And it dumps into the container, which has a mark drawn on it for a half cup bees. And I used it once to do a sample last week when I talked about those samples. And it works spectacularly. I made two of them while I was out in the garage. I made one for me and I gave the other one to Bob to test. I've used it once and it worked great. The video is called Polyhive Inspection and Mic Check with Bee Collector. And Richard Wall of Richmond, Virginia was the guy who invented this thing. DIY Bee Collector for my test is the name of it. May 20th, Bee Culture Magazine. It was page 23. Can you tell I'm looking at the notes on the channel? If you go into the channel, you'll look and see that while I have not been posting podcasts, I've been making a lot of videos lately. Uh, the nuke that I talked about where I harvested the frames for the top bar, I did an inspection in Varroa Mite Check to show how that works. Uh, Bob shows how a queen moves to a queen cage. I did an aggressive hive split. I talked about the hive split. Anyway, you get it. There's videos out there. It's youtube.com slash nwnjba. Go check them out if you're interested in following along. Also, the other thing that I would say to you is the um, euthanization video. I was discussing this with Bob Kloss tonight when he called. Um, the comments are hysterical. A lot of them are lay people who have received the feed because the algorithm in YouTube has put it up and it's sharing it with just about anybody and everybody. But there's a lot of beekeepers who came in there and have 
given some constructive criticism, advice, as I've said in the previous episode, and some of it is really good. There's the occasional person who absolutely pans me for my great and adept uh, technique at working bees, which I deserve in some respects, but I won't defend it here. But if you want some fascinating time alone, <laughs> just go open that video and click on the comments to filter by newest and just scroll through. You know, there's so many people who said, I didn't know I was going to watch a bee video, but here I am 35 minutes later and I watched the whole thing. Well, when you start reading the comments, you're going to be like, I didn't know I wanted to read all these comments, but I'm at like 700 of a thousand something comments and you have a really good time at it. So if you want to be entertained, you can go check that video out. Okay. I believe that's the bottom of the pile. There's 85 things in the stack that I could have gotten to, but this is what I wanted to put out here tonight. Uh, if you've written in to me, apologies for not calling out, responding back on that. Um, I have to say thank you for donations. Some of you heard that my video camera went south and sent actually donations dedicated to that. I promise I will put those to the right place. Uh, August, September timeframe, I picked out a camera and when I have enough money in in funding, I'm going to replace it. I miss it terribly. And I was actually thinking about for the first time in my life, go fund me <laughs> to see, because I'd like to have it now and my budget can't afford it, but I'm trying to be patient and I'll, I'll allow myself to make the purchase uh, when enough savings occurs to get that going. Uh, I spent quite a bit on those polystyrene nukes and I don't have the budget to replace the camera right now. But shooting everything with my phone and whatever else I have laying around. But I really do miss my video camera. And I'm looking forward to being able to replace it. Uh, in the meantime, I'll just keep shooting with whatever I have available to me. And uh, But those who send in donations, I oh, seriously, I can't thank you enough for uh, having the the generosity to to do that and you'll never know how much that means to me when uh, people support the show by donating to the um, link that's on the home page so thanks for that okay i think it's time like our beloved bees when beekeepers go together we can accomplish great things thanks for listening everyone and see you next time on the beekeepers corner <laughs>